How far would you travel to find love? Can you imagine crossing the ocean to marry a total stranger? At the beginning of the 17th century, emigration from the British Isles was predominantly of young, single men. But it was decided back in London that this needed to change. And so began an extraordinary trade in marriageable women, dispatched by ship to settle in the new American colonies. Who were these women? Why were they prepared to sail off into the unknown in search of a husband? And how did it work out? I'm Mukti Jane Campion, and this week I'm on the trail of the Tobacco Wives with writer Jennifer Potter. Welcome to Departures, a podcast series from the Migration Museum, exploring 400 years of British emigration. Episode 2, Maiden's Voyage. Come all ye very merry London girls that are disposed to travel. Here is a voyage now at hand will save your feet from gravel. Imagine these women setting off on their journey. They get to Gravesend, which is a very bustling, busy port. And they will first of all have gone to the church there, St George's Church, where there would have been a little service They would have sought God's blessing for the journey. And then they would have to have fought their way through the very busy quayside and been taken out to the ships. Why you shall on shipboard go like loving rogues together. Some are already gone before the rest must after follow. Then come away and do not stay. Your guide shall be Apollo. A group of... 36 of the women travelled on a ship called the Warwick. And you have to imagine how they must have felt knowing that this was their last view of England. And they can't have expected ever to return. Where these women on the Warwick are headed is Jamestown, Virginia, since 1607 the first permanent English settlement in North America. Over a decade later, the English planters there are still struggling to establish themselves in the face of disease, famine and attacks by Native American inhabitants. They hope to get rich through growing tobacco and then to get out, back to England. Some have set up home with Native American women, even though this is highly frowned upon. The colony's future is looking decidedly shaky. The Virginia Company of London, which is in charge of the colony, has decided something must be done. Now, the very first settlers were all male, and the Virginia Company very much wanted people who would put down roots and stay in the new world. And sending out marriageable women was very much part of that. Jennifer Potter is the author of The Jamestown Brides, The Bartered Wives of the New World. She's been digging deep into the archives on both sides of the Atlantic to find out more about the 17th century women emigrants from England. Although women had always been coming to the colony, there were never enough of them. There was never more than about one woman to every six men. And the leader of the company, very much the new leader, it was Sir Edwin Sands, wanted to increase the population. The plantation can never flourish till families be planted and the respect of wives and children fix the people on the soil. 
So he had the idea of importing marriageable women, sending over shiploads of women who would marry the planters, produce children, settle down. Virginia was a very rowdy place. And it was also hoped that the presence of more women and families and children would tame this unruly settler element. It's decided that women are needed to keep house, look after the livestock and help the men tough it out in the deadly environs of the new world. The governor, Sir Francis Wyatt, he even suggested that the weaker sex, as he called them, were better constituted to survive Virginia's unhealthy climate than men. That great numbers of newcomers have been lost is not to be denied or dissembled. The weaker sex do better than men, either because their work is indoors or or because they have a colder temper. In 1619, the Virginia Company of London issues an order that a fit hundredth might be sent of women, maids, young and uncorrupt, to make wives to the inhabitants, and by that means to make the men there more settled and less movable. The company advertises for young women willing to emigrate. The enticement they offer includes free passage and a dowry of clothes and bed linen to start their new lives abroad. On arrival, they'll have a free choice of eligible husbands, and if they do marry, their husband will pay the company, not in cash, but in £150 of pure leaf tobacco. This is calculated to deliver a substantial profit for the company's investors. But the offer is not open to just any woman. Unlike some of the vagrants and prostitutes who've been shipped out in the past, these young maidens are seen as the founding mothers of the American colony. They need to be women of quality. The company said that the women it was looking for to send over to Virginia had to be young, handsome and honestly educated. And there are these two extraordinary lists that survive at Magdalen College, Cambridge, in the archives. And they tell us that indeed the women, well, we don't know if they were handsome, but we know that they were young and certainly honestly educated. As many as one in six came from the ranks of the gentry. And the leader of the company, Sir Edwin Sands, even put up one of his kinswomen. Cicely Bray, age 25, born in Gloucestershire. Her parents are gentlefolk of good esteem. She is of kin to Sir Edwin Sands and recommended by Mr Hall. Martha Baker, aged 20 years, born at Ilford, skilful in weaving and making of silk points. Catherine Finch, aged 23, born Hertfordshire, mother and father dead, now dwelling in the Strand, London, in service of her brother, who is the king's crossbow maker. Elizabeth Neville, aged 19 years, born at Westminster. Her father was a gentleman of worth. Her good carriage is testified by diverse of the company. And those who weren't gentry were all what you would call middling women. Their fathers, brothers, male relatives worked in respectable trades. And so they were very definitely respectable In age, they ranged well. The youngest was just 15. Jane Dyer, age 15. Born St Catharines, London. Father was a waterman, now dead. She goes with the consent of her mother. Lucy Remnant, 
aged 22 years, born Guilford, Surrey. Her father and mother are dead. Audrey Hoare, maid aged 19, born in Aylesbury, Buckinghamshire. She can do plain work and make all manner of buttons. Anne Richards, widow, aged 25 years. Assured to have been very honest and industrious by the minister and chiefs of that parish. Anne Jackson, born in Salisbury. Father is a gardener and he brought her and her brother to go to Virginia. And the oldest was, well, three of them declared their ages as 28. But I was able to find their parish baptismal records and at least one of those lied about her age. And she was nearly 32 when she got to Virginia. So what was driving these women? It does seem like a long way to go in search of a husband. I think a lot of them will have been persuaded to go by their families. For the women, one of the major attractions of going would have been to find a husband. Society at the time expected all women to marry just at a time when it was becoming very difficult to find a husband. Finding a husband was such a widespread problem, it even became the subject of popular ballads of the time, like this one. The maidens of London are now in despair, How they shall get husbands, it is all their care. Though maidens be never so virtuous and fair, Yet all wealthy widows are young men's chief wear. Oh, this is a waving age. Oh, this is a waving age. A young man need never take thought how to wife, For widows and maidens for husbands do strive. Here's scant men enough for them all left alive. They flock to the church like bees to the hive. Oh, this is a waving age. Oh, this is a waving age. A lot of them will already have migrated from the provinces to London. They're the ones who will have found it particularly difficult to find a husband because the London marriage market was very tricky, very difficult to crack. The kind of husband a lot of the women will have hoped to get would have been artisans who served long apprenticeships of seven years, during which time the young men weren't allowed to marry. And when they came to the end of their apprenticeship, a lot of them wanted to marry either the master's daughter or a rich widow who could set them up in business. And these young women, even if they'd come from reasonable families who had migrated down to London, would have been right at the bottom of the queue when it came to finding a husband. Young maidens are bashful, but widows are bold. They temper young men with their silver and gold. For love nowadays, for money is sold. If she be worth treasure, no matter how old. Oh, this is a waving age. Oh, this is a waving age. People in England felt very poor at the time. There was rising population, rising prices, declining wages and terrific hikes in the dowries that families had to put up for their daughters to find a husband. The, the sort of women who went to Virginia 
Most of their families would have been expected to pay between 10 and 50 pounds in a dowry. Whereas here, the company was offering to find them a husband for free. Come all ye very merry London girls that are disposed to travel. Here is a voyage now at hand will save your feet from gravel. The company will have painted a unrealistic portrait of the kind of life they were going to find in Virginia. The Virginia company was often accused of not telling the full truth about how difficult life could be. When you come to the appointed place, your minds you need not trouble. For every growth that you got here, you shall have three times double. For there are gold and silver mines and treasures much abounding. As plenty as Newcastle coals at some parts may be founding. Then come, come away, make no delay, delay, all you that mean to follow. The ships are ready, bound to go. Conducted by Apollo. Imagine the women scrambled up the ladder and onto the deck. They're entering an alien world and a very masculine one where they must live among sailors clad in scanty rags of appalling filthiness. That's one of the contemporary descriptions of sailors where drunkenness is the norm and discipline was brutal. Women were thought to bring bad luck at sea and relations between passengers and the sailors were notoriously poor. They must have been frightened. I would like to think that they were looking forward to finding a husband. Do we know what luggage the women would have taken with them? Most of the women will simply have taken the clothes that they were given by the Virginia Company. And in the archives, there's a wonderful list of the clothes that they were supplied with. One petticoat, one waistcoat, two pairs of stockings, one pair of garters, two smocks, a hat with bands, one apron, two pairs of shoes, one towel. Two quaffs, that was headdresses, and one crosscloth, that was also kind of headdress. As well as worsted wool for darning, and yarn for knitting stockings. So uh, that's more or less all they had. And they were going to a country with freezing winter temperatures and very hot summer temperatures. And this was all they took. Thine clothing then may serve your turn when as you do come thither. For there the sun is hot enough and very warm the weather. The waterman's daughter, Jane Dyer, she packed a little packet of linen. It may have referred to menstrual cloths that she had packed. The Virginia Company did supply the women who left on the Warwick with a casket of prunes for the journey, as well as uh, books of psalms. But there was one other rather nice touch among the items of clothing they took. There were a dozen white lamb gloves supplied by a perfumer called William Piddock. Now, white lamb gloves, it was a traditional wedding gift. So that's why there was this one luxury item among workaday clothes, such as waistcoats and petticoats. But before the happy prospect of a wedding day, the young women must cross an ocean. 
passengers would have been herded down a grated hatch into a space that was known as the tween decks. It was between the deck and the cargo hold, where the ordinary passengers spent almost the entire voyage, remember three to four months long, cooped up in this space with the other passengers. The Warwick had 100 passengers in all, 36 of them these maids for Virginia. And here they would have slept two to a kind of makeshift bed. It was a wooden box with a straw mattress with the rugs provided by the Virginia company. Just imagine the smell. Unwashed bodies, vomit, really, really primitive sanitary arrangements. And they were cooped up there for three to four months with rotten food was another familiar complained. Things like poor John, which was dry fish and hard ship's biscuit. Very, very monotonous diet. For the women on board ship, it would have been a time of great tedium when you were going through storms. Being cooped up in the tween deck space was the most terrifying thing of all because all you could hear were the terrible noises of the storm and the shouts of the sailors. And you were helpless because you wouldn't have been allowed up on deck and you were just cooped up in there and just fearing for your life. One of the groups of women traveled by a little ship called the Tiger and they had an even worse problem. After they'd left Gravesend, the ship was blown by storms off course to the coast of Spain and where they had a terrifying encounter with pirates. Miraculously, all the women do arrive safely in Virginia in December 1621. As their ship sails into Chesapeake Bay and tacks slowly up the James River, it approaches the capital of the new colony, then known as James City. When they got there, they will have found there were just 24 houses in James City. There were other settlements around the James River, but just imagine their disappointment after facing these ferocious winter storms, dreadful conditions, and they're here to find themselves a husband. And they come to this dilapidated settlement with a triangular fort, wooden palisade that was not quite in ruins, but certainly not in good state. There was a church, a wooden church, a larger granary, and 24 houses. Just imagine how your heart must have sunk. So they get to Virginia. How do they fare? Were there lots of eligible men waiting for them? A few of them found husbands straight away. Most of them were dispersed around the colony to other settlements because, uh, remember, you've got one woman to every six men, so they couldn't just be let loose in the colony. They had to be sent to married settlers who could chaperone them until they found a husband. So they dispersed to settlements around the James River. A few will have stayed at Jamestown. And was it a free-for-all? Did the men choose their brides or did the young maidens get to choose? That's, that's a nice question. Now, we're told the women were to be given a free choice of husband. But actually, 
because the Virginia Company was trying to make money from these women, uh, it didn't want them to marry people who couldn't afford to pay the £150 in weight of best leaf tobacco. And there were certainly complaints among poorer planters that they were being kept away from the women. So the women were to get a free choice, but they also had to be protected. Virginia was a very unruly place. And really from its earliest days of the colony, there were laws that gave some sexual protection to women. That's both settler women and Native American women. Ordaining that no man shall ravish or force any woman maid or Indian or other, upon pain of death. So this is why they had to stay with married settlers until they could find a husband of their own. Since the earliest days of the colony, the English settlers have faced periodic hostility from the local Native American groups whose land they've occupied. For the women who've innocently crossed the ocean looking for love... What happens next must have been truly shocking. Three months after they arrived, the 22nd of March, 1622, there was what is now known as the Great Indian Attack. And I should say the Virginian Native American tribes do still call themselves Indians. They refer to themselves as the Virginia Indian tribes. So there was the Great Attack in which between a third and a quarter of the colony was wiped out. That's men, women and children. Do you know what actually happened to the young women sent from London? I have found out what happened to around a third of the women. And we know that some of the unmarried maids were killed in the Great Indian Attack. And it included the kinswoman of Sir Edwin Sands, Cicely Bray, age 25, born in Gloucestershire. She died at a settlement called Powell Brook, along with a, a cloth worker's daughter. And what happened to the women who did survive the attacks? I don't know what happened to everyone, but some of the women did find husbands, did produce children and did put down roots. Catherine Finch, age 23, born Hertfordshire. Catherine Finch, when she left for Virginia. She was living in London. In service of her brother. Who was Erasmus Finch. The king's crossbow maker. She was one of the lucky ones. She found a husband. She married a carpenter called Robert Fisher. They went to live at a place upriver from Jamestown, which was a very sensible because it's a tidal river and upriver is fresh water. Jamestown, one of the reasons it was such a deadly place was um, a lot of people died from salt water poisoning. They settle in a place called Jordan's Point. They produce a daughter called Cicely. Everything's looking fine. And then 1625, they suddenly disappear from the records altogether. I suspect they probably succumbed to the many sicknesses and fevers that were still decimating the population. Another one who married well was Audrey Hoare. Audrey Hoare, maid age 19, born in Aylesbury, Buckinghamshire. She can do plain work and make all manner of buttons. She was the daughter of a very poor shoemaker. She marries a man called Thomas Harris. 
They also go and live upriver from Jamestown. She produces two children. There's a girl, a daughter called Mary, and a son called William. And I've actually met one of William's direct descendants. They lived at a place called Neck of Land, Charles City. Audrey dies in the early 1630s, and the family goes on to become very definitely one of Virginia's elite. So here was the daughter of a poor shoemaker who writes a will after she's left for Virginia, and in his will, he leaves his daughter, Audrey, one shilling. And he also leaves a shilling to her unnamed daughter. So that's the daughter, Mary. Catherine Finch and Audrey Hall clearly did achieve their goal of marrying well and creating a new life in Virginia. But perhaps one of the most intriguing stories that Jennifer Potter has uncovered is of the young woman called Anne Jackson. Anne Jackson, born in Salisbury. Father is a gardener and he brought her and her brother to go to Virginia. When she left for Virginia, she was just 17, and she was going to join her brother, John Jackson, at a very thriving settlement called Martin's Hundred. She goes over there. Now, I'm afraid that Martin's Hundred was one of the settlements worst hit during the Great Indian Attack, and upwards of 70 settlers from Martin's Hundred alone died in the attack. And for a long time, it was thought that Anne Jackson was one of these because she disappeared. But she didn't die. She was taken prisoner by the Pamunkey Indians. And you don't hear of her for nearly seven years. So I think her captivity lasted that long. When suddenly in January 1629, she appears in court records for Jamestown. And the records say that Anne Jackson, which came from the Indians, something about how she should be shipped back home by the first available ship, and that her brother, John Jackson, should keep her safe until she could be shipped abroad. So, you know, Why was she being sent home? Had she lost her reason? Had she gone native? Because by the time she reappears, she will have been wearing Indian dress because her Virginia company clothing, the waistcoat and the petticoat and everything else would have worn out. So she would have had no option but to wear Indian dress Do you know anything about how Anne Jackson was treated by the Pamunkey Indians? Um, I did spend some time in the company of Helen Roundtree, who is one of the Virginian scholars who have specialised in looking at early settler life from the Indian perspective. And Helen still works closely with the Virginian tribes. She gave me some insight into the kind of processes that Anne Jackson will have gone through in captivity. Women who were taken prisoner by the Indians were not raped. They were put to work. They were used as kind of slave labour and they were generally traded back to the English. It's possible she 
found a husband among her captors. Because that certainly happened. She may even have had a child of her own. And she would have been taken from them when she was returned to the English. These tantalising glimpses of lives lived in the aftermath of the Indian attack give us some idea of what the true stakes were for those early women who'd set out to find a husband and settle in a strange land so far from home. The company had hoped the scheme would be so successful that stories would come back to England about how well married the women were and investors made fat profits and gained land in Virginia. But it didn't turn out like that at all. The Virginia Company, in fact, only lasted until 1624 when it really did go bankrupt. The story doesn't have a happy end for the Virginia Company or for the investors in the trade. I suspect they got none of their money back. The trade in tobacco wives may have petered out with the demise of the Virginia Company, but the incentives for single British women to migrate around the world and help populate the colonies would continue well into the early 20th century. Thanks for listening to Departures. Next time, I'll be looking at the young men of the English East India Company who travelled to India in the 18th century to seek their fortunes. Do join me again. Departures was produced and presented by Mukti Jain Campion. Title music is by Shakira Malkani and the ballad singer was Mary Keith. Historic readings were by Adrian Prater and Joanna Perslow. The podcast series is a culture-wise production for the Migration Museum and has been supported by the Arts Council England. To find out more about the Migration Museum and current exhibitions, visit the website www.migrationmuseum.org.